we are talking about theology, and as we work through these disciplines, we're going to be looking, okay, what does each worldview say about theology? Because every worldview, again, as we've talked about at the beginning on the introduction, is every worldview needs to, or at least attempts to, answer the big questions of life. In other words, our origin, uh, meaning, morality, destiny, identity. And so every worldview is attempting to answer that. And so what we're looking for is which worldview best answers the reality around us, right? Because if your worldview falls short, if it's not big enough to handle a question, then that tells you there's certainly limits on that worldview as far as it being a true worldview or that which best matches reality. And so we're going to work through each one of these disciplines as we go through. Oh, I just need to say this. Next week, there is no class. Okay, don't come here next week because you'll be in the dark all alone. It's almost like on an island, right? It's almost kind of like that, but nobody coming to visit you, that's for sure. So anyway, so don't come next week. We don't have class next week. And then the week after that, we will meet again. And then philosophy will be uh, the topic that we'll be looking at from that. And so let's get started. Theology, right? Theology is the study of God. Theology is the study of God, right? A.W. Tozer says, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. And so again, when we talk, everybody has a thought about God. And this is what Tozer is saying. And what you think about God is going to determine how you live your life. Right? And hopefully as followers of Christ, man, we think highly of God. He is exalted. Man, he is holy beyond all things. He is just amazing, creator, powerful, all-knowing, all-loving. He's all of those things. And that should be our thoughts when we think about God. Right? Because when we think rightly about God, we'll think rightly about humanity. But what happens is, is we invert those two and we think, not much about God, but we think a lot about humanity. We think a lot about ourselves. And as soon as that happens, we start moving away from God's purpose and design, and we end up in a ditch. Whether it's to the left or to the right, we end up in a ditch. So what we think about God is the most important thing we think because it affects how we live our lives day to day. Um, And so there's three basic views of God. Uh, There's theism, right, which believes in the existence of a personal God independent of creation. And personal becomes an important word when we talk about theism. He's a personal, he's an intimate, he's a loving God. And that's theism, right? Deism would kind of fall. We could talk about that, and that's where God created the universe, all of its laws, but he does not intervene in human affairs. He's not a personal, intimate God. So he would be a God, he kind of created the universe, he wound it up, and then he just steps back and, and lets, it, lets it operate by the laws of nature, and then whatever happens is what happens. He's not personally involved. No miracles would be affected by a God of deism. And then we have pantheism, which believes all living beings and material objects are divine. God is the universe, Right? The rock is God, the tree is God, the ocean is God. Everything is just a living, breathing organism the universe is, and that's pantheism. All right, polytheism would be not, it would just, there's many gods. It's a subcategory of pantheism. It's just not everything is God. There's just millions of gods. Not necessarily the rock or the tree or the pavement, 
but there's millions and millions of gods under the polytheism world. And then there's atheism, which believes that there is no God at all. And even in that, you can end up with hard atheism and soft atheism and agnosticism will come out of that, um, which is what this is. You're not sure if the existence of God or the non-existence of God can even be known. If there's a God, he cannot be known. That's what an agnostic would say. Or maybe a soft agnostic and say, you know, I'm just not really sure. And to be honest, I just don't really care. You know, and that would be an idea under agnosticism. Atheism just says there is no God. All right, so secularism and theology. Theology of secularism, it is atheism, the belief that there is no God. They're not necessarily opposed that you believe in a God, but secularism, there's no room for God within that realm. Uh, There's nothing or no one higher than humans. We are the pinnacle of the evolution of the world that we live in. We are the pinnacle of it, the highest formed animals, the highest evolved animals, right? Present life is all that matters, right? Live, eat, drink, and be merry, for after this you die and you become worm food. And that's, that's just basically the total of your existence. And then if humanity needs to be saved, we will save ourselves. We will save ourselves. And again, you get a lot of that within um, the, the climate change religion and where it's just like we have got to save the earth because humanity depends on that. And so you would get that idea found in secularism. Uh, we are the same, right? Kurt Vonnegut, right, he said, being a humanist means trying to behave decently without expectation of rewards or punishments after you're dead. Right, and we saw this when we were covering secular humanism and we were looking at the humanist manifesto. Right, and this was an idea that came up several times. It's just, man, we, we, we want to behave decently. Right? And we do so without expectations for rewards or punishments after you're dead. But what he doesn't say is we do it for rewards and punishments while we're alive. Because just about any of these quotes, you can turn them on their heads and just the opposite, and you find, okay, that doesn't work that way. And even in that, how do we even determine the idea that there needs to be rewards and punishments? I mean, what is good to reward and what is bad that we would punish? I mean, where does that idea even come from if there is no moral law giver? All right, new atheism, it's, oh, let me get that up here, right? You got this idea of new atheism. It's more than anti-atheism, and it's very confrontational. It's very vindictive. Uh, it's very condescending. I mean, they will just live, it's more of an attack on you for your beliefs as opposed to saying, hey, you, you know, you believe what you want to believe. I think it's foolishness. I think it's crazy, but that's your world. The new atheism, no, we cannot let that stand. They will tear down your belief system in a heartbeat as much as they can, right? And these are some of the, the the big guys in atheism, you have Richard, uh, the new atheism. you got Richard Dawkins, Sam Harris, Daniel Dennett. Again, Christopher Hitchens, he's, he's really no longer an atheist. He passed away in 2011, and so now he knows that there is a God. Okay? But these other guys, they haven't, they haven't achieved that yet, right? And so, and the funny thing about Christopher Hitchens is, man, his brother's a strong believer. I don't know if I've mentioned that before in the past. Stephen, his brother, man, is a super strong Christian. And then you've got Richard Dawkins, who's not, or Christopher Hitchens was not. I'm sorry, Christopher Hitchens was not. So some quotes by atheists. 
Right, Richard Dawkins mocked them. In other words, the Christians ridicule them in public. Don't fall for the convention that we're all too polite to talk about religion. Man, this guy's a scientist. And when I first read that quote several years ago, it just struck me as interesting because I thought, well, man, if you've got all the scientific evidence, man, just bring that to bear on the subject. And you don't have to worry about mocking and ridiculing people and making fun of them. Just drop your evidence on, prove your case that there is no God, and let's move on. But no, that's his default case. We'll just mock, ridicule, make fun of you, diminish you, marginalize you. Right, Bertrand Russell, he says, I'm not a Christian. I do not believe in God and in, in, and in mortality. I do not think that Christ was the best and wisest of men, although I grant him a very high degree of moral goodness. And I thought that was rather big of Bertrand, that he would, he would at least give that much to Jesus. Right? But again, he's passed away. He's no longer an atheist. All right, and then Christopher Hitchens again, that which can be asserted without evidence can be dismissed without evidence. You know, so when I get these quotes, I think, okay, how would I respond to that? And I think we should. I mean, that should be an exercise that we work through when somebody makes a quote, whether you read it, whether you hear it on TV or whether it's in a song or something. How would you respond to that from a biblical worldview? And again, that's part of cultivating a biblical worldview in our lives is thinking through these ideas where... Oh, how would I respond to that quote? How would I respond to that question? Right? And for me, it's just like, well, what would you count as evidence? What would you consider to be evidence? Evidence that you would believe and that you would consider. And again, this turns it into a conversation. I'm not trying to prove him wrong or anything. I'm just trying to extend that conversation out. Again, I think I've said this before when I was first you know, getting into a lot of the apologetic realms. I used to just go to atheist websites and I would just click into them and I just man I would just read all their questions and say which ones can I answer how would I answer that which ones can I answer and then I would go and try to find answers for those questions and so you know I'm not spending all this time talking with atheists I'm just trying to answer their questions and it's beneficial and that's how we cultivate a biblical worldview that's how we learn to have these conversations is is we practice we practice. And then you go talk to other people about it, your friends, and then you can work that back. You just get more comfortable having these conversations and hearing the questions as opposed to when the first time it comes, like, well, I don't know. I haven't given that any thought. So it takes time. It takes work, but it's well worth it if we're going to defend the faith. Oh, Isaac Asimov, uh, man, a, a fiction writer. I think he was a biochemist also. He said, emotionally, I am an atheist. Uh, I don't have the evidence to prove that God doesn't exist, but I so strongly suspect that he doesn't that I don't want to waste my time. Now, again, as a fiction writer, I can see that, but as a scientist, I can't. Right? We pursue truth, we search it out, and we try to find it. But what happens with God and secularism is you can't test for God. You can't test for God. And so if I can't test, then I don't believe. That means God doesn't exist. But again, there's just so many things that we can't test for in a lab, but we know exist. And we don't refute those things. You can't test for love. You can't test for hate, right? There's cognitive things that, you know, that we can come up with an idea, 
Right? You can't test for that, but we know ideas exist. And so it's to sit there and say, I only believe what science can prove, that's being intellectually dishonest, or you clearly haven't thought through that whole idea when you make that claim. So he says he can't prove it, so I don't believe it. Many atheists believe that science and the scientific method have successfully done away with the idea of God's existence. But again, it goes back to the idea you can't prove his non-existence. And so ultimately it becomes a philosophical choice. It becomes an emotional choice that we make that I'm just not going to believe. But we shouldn't claim that it's a scientific choice. We shouldn't claim that. C.S. Lewis says, atheism turns out to be too simple. If the whole universe has no meaning, we should never have found out that it has no meaning. We would, we would never think about it. If there was no God, we wouldn't even think about, is there a God or what is a God? Or It would, it would never come into our, our, our thinking. But because we do think about it, clearly that idea is there for a reason. And someone put that idea there. So now let's look at Marxism and atheism. I'm sorry, Marxism and theology. Atheism is the foundation of Marxism. Right? We talk about it, it's an economic philosophy. We spent some time talking about that, but at the root of Marxism is atheism. But whereas in secularism, right, you can believe in God if you want. I don't want to believe in God. You know, we can do our own thing. In Marxism, that's not the case. Right? God does not exist. He cannot exist. He must not exist. We cannot allow that, de that theistic foot to be in the door. And they won't allow that. Uh, Karl Marx said religion is the opiate of the people. Right? If you're spending your time and your hope is in a life after this, well, how are you going to rise up against the, the bourgeoisie and, and have your revolution? Right? That kept the people from revolting against the oppressors. Vladimir Lenin stated, the idea of God encourages the working class to drown its terrible economic plight in the spiritual booze of some mythical heaven. He probably put some time into putting that one together. But again, it's this opiate, it's a spiritual booze. That's what religion does. It keeps you from accomplishing what the state wants you to accomplish. Marxism demands adherence to atheism. And we see that alive and well. You got this idea of liberation theology. It's a subset of Marxism. It's tailored to Christians. Uh, it interprets the teachings of Jesus as a call to liberate the poor. And so, you know, Jesus becomes a social justice warrior. Jesus is a secularist. Jesus is a socialist. Um, and so they interpret his writings in that vein from an economic perspective. And it's to liberate the poor. And that's Jesus' number one job is to, we're going to create equity. We're going to have equality. There's not going to be oppression, no more of that. And this is found predominantly in Central American countries and the Catholic countries. You see liberation theology is alive and well. And that just becomes a subset of Marxism. They accept many tenets of Marxism, but deny that you must be an atheist. Under liberation theology, you don't have to be an atheist. You just have to receive most of those other tenets and beliefs and ideas that are found in Marxism. We good? Questions? All right. I mean, it's like saying you don't have to be an 
Well, you certainly have to hold to a lot of those ideas. It shouldn't be, you know, again, it's, you know, what I, when I talk with the students and the college students, it's okay that if you believe in God, but, you know, you just have to fit your God into these ideas. Instead of, or I, you know, most of the time what we do is we take our life and we try to figure out how do we get our Christianity into our life. Well, that's, that's not a biblical Christianity. A biblical Christianity is, this is my life. How does everything else work in with my faith? All right, we don't work our faith in in our spare time and on the weekends and when I have vacation or time off. Man, that is my life day in and day out. How does my work schedule fit into that? How does my school schedule fit into that? And we get that backwards, and that's certainly the way that liberation theology would work. It's okay that you believe in a God. Just don't believe too much. Just don't believe too much. So postmodernism and theology... Right? They don't start out with atheism, but they do eventually get there. They do eventually get there, right? And remember from last week, um, you know, God, he's just a socially constructed story to oppress people. It's just an idea that's used to keep people in oppression. All right? They're theologically suspicious. The reality is they're suspicious of any meta narrative. Again, they a postmodernist would be suspicious against Marxism. We talked about this last week, maybe secularism. Any worldview that claims to have this grand story that answers everything else a postmodernist is going to be against. Except for theirs. Right? Except for their grand story of social construction socially constructed ideas and stories. Um, they like theirs. Everything else is open to critique. Then we talked about this religious pluralism, right? Religious pluralism accepts there are many different religions that exist and people disagree about which is true. And that, we get that. We, I think we can understand that. All right, descriptive pluralism acknowledges there's many different religions and because of their competing views, not all can be true. So we must be tolerant of one another. And again, that would be that idea of freedom of religion. Right? Freedom of religion is you have the right to live out your faith in the marketplace of ideas. And so whether you're Muslim, Christian, Hindu, Jehovah's Witness, Mormon, you can live those ideas out in the marketplace. And we should support that right to do that. Because you can't turn around and say, oh, you know what, it's, we're a Christian nation and we're only going to have, you know, Christianity. Well, that's not freedom of religion. That's not freedom of religion. Man, we should let every religion, every idea stand on its own. It doesn't concern me because I know the truth always wins. I know the truth always wins. And as long as I can communicate that truth and ask questions about other people's faith, I know Christianity is always going to stand. It has for 2,000 years, and it will for 2,000 more if we're here. And so the truth will always win. So I don't worry about competing ideas. I don't worry about competing views because the truth always wins. Then you have prescriptive pluralism. There's many different religions, and none of them are true. So we should tolerate all of them. They're all false but that's okay. This is where postmodernists fall. 
which, which again, they're the only ones that have the truth, that know that, and they've got that figured out. Truth will always win. New spirituality. It aligns with pantheism. In other words, God is everything. God is not a person but a force or a sacred energy that makes up the universe. Like George Lucas, any Star Wars fans, right? Man, this guy was huge into this new age idea. I mean, you know, he, this is where you have entertainment that carries a worldview idea in it. And all entertainment does. Yeah, Bart. Yeah, yeah, that's a, <laughs> I'm trying to look at Barton and wait for him to drop the other shoe on me here, but yeah, it's just, a, you know, and so it's amazing. And again, I'm, I'm not opposed to that. I think it's, okay, let's talk about it. Let's bring that out. But literally, I mean, that's what George Lucas was doing in, in his movies. Man, he's pushing this idea of new age. God's a force. He's not a person, Right? Not something you can know, but you can use the force. You can use the force to your benefit. And again, that's new age. And so we find that in, look, there's no entertainment, there's no media that you don't find a worldview being permeated in, in some way, shape, or form. It's, it's not worldview neutral. There's nothing that's worldview neutral. It's always driving some kind of idea. And that's why we have to be able to discern when we're watching a movie, right? When we're listening to a song, that it's like, man, what worldview is being presented here? What worldview is being presented? Reincarnation is a part of the New Age, Hinduism, uh, Buddhism, and it's a central belief that's after biological death, the soul is reborn into a new body. You're either an animal, a human, or a spirit, and you continue this process until you reach enlightenment. Again, when do you reach that? Nobody knows. Who has reached that? Nobody knows. But that's the path that they're moving on. Enlightenment would be you get you reach the point where because nirvana is kind of the height of that where you just come absorbed into the universe your individuality is gone right your, Kevin was teaching on this and so you're no longer an individual but you just become one with the universe I think I was sharing with somebody it would it's be like taking a a drop of water and you're that drop of water and I drop you in the ocean where you are no longer discernible as a drop of water, you just become a part of everything else that's in the ocean. And that would be enlightenment or consciousness that you finally reach. And so you're, you're always trying to get away from the self within this. Individuality, nope, that's a problem. That's a problem. Only when you reach this point where you just get absorbed into the consciousness of the universe and... That's it. You've reached the pinnacle. Whatever that is, whatever that looks like, whatever that feels like, that's it. But then again, nobody knows because nobody's achieved it. And they don't know how many times you have to be reincarnated to get there. Jim. Uh, my question is, who is the first? Who's the first to? Who was, who was, who was the first soul? Oh, the first soul. Yeah. Yeah, you have that problem. 
Now, you have that problem in most, most worldviews is where does the beginning begin? I mean, that's, that's most worldviews are going to get there. If secularism would, I mean, you know, right now I think they're trying to make the case back for that the universe is eternal. And we're going to deal with that here in just a little bit, that it's always existed. But that becomes the question that how do you answer that? Do you have an answer for that? Really, only Christianity. You can say Islam has an answer for that. Uh, Judaism has an answer for that. But just about anything else cannot answer that question of who was the first? Was there a first? Yeah. Islam, a monotheistic faith, there's only one God. Right? And so when we break that down, well, I'll, wait, I'll, I'll hang on to that. Uh, they reject the Trinitarian monotheistic, in other words, the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, the view of God. Right? They, would call, they would call us, because we believe in the Trinity, they would call us polytheist in the realm of Islam. So we would just be in the same gamut as the Hindus and, the, and all of the other New Age type of Eastern religions because they would see that as polythe polytheism. Right? They believe the Quran is the true and uncorrupted word of Allah. The Bible was at one time, certainly the Old Testament was God's word, but it, it became corrupted. New Testament, corrupted. Only the Quran is uncorrupted is what they would say. Man, I just, I just started reading the new book, and it is actually on this. Uh, some of you may have already read it. Nabil Qureshi, Seeking Allah, Finding Jesus. Man, this is an amazing book. If, has anybody read it? That is awesome. I love this book. I've just got it started. We sell that in the bookstore, by the way. And uh, just put that plug in there. But his is just, it's a, so far it's a great story. If you've got time, I encourage you to pick it up and read that. Um, and then Christianity. Right? It's a theistic belief that's centered on the person of Jesus Christ. If I say something that you don't know, just raise your hand. Yeah. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Right? God exists outside of his creation and prior to his creation. Right? And that's where we get in, who was the first? Right? The question that Jim was asking. He exists outside of his creation and prior to his creation. Right? If Genesis 1-1 is true, atheism and pantheism cannot be true. Cannot be true. And so when you get down to this idea, well, how do you know which religion is true? Well, when you start dealing with the, the pantheistic and the polytheistic religions, it's got to be something that's always existed. It's got to be something that's always existed, right? That's all-powerful, all-knowing, unchanging. But that's no God in the pantheistic or polytheistic world. You only get that God in Christianity, Islam, and Judaism. That's it. And so once you get to that point, when you've eliminated pantheism, you've eliminated the majority of the religions that exist in the world. Once you get down to that point of creation, who created You've eliminated it. So then you only have to deal with three more. You've got to discern the truth from those three belief systems. Uh, monotheism of Christianity is different from the monotheism of Judaism and Islam in that it holds to a Trinitarian view. We, we believe in the Trinity. One God and three persons. 
right? God's revealed himself as three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but one God. St. Patrick's bad analogy. I just, I just love this, this video. It's, uh, one, it's come, we're, coming, we're getting close to St. Patrick's Day, so I think it's appropriate that we watch this. And um, there's, there's some really good theology in here dealing with the Trinity. You'll have to listen fast, listen close, because it moves pretty quick. Uh, but it's definitely, has anybody seen this? And I love it. My daughter sends this to me every year on St. Patrick's Day. All right. St. Patrick's bad analogies. Just to be simple people like that. That's my goal. That's my goal, to be simple people like that. Uh, I just love that. You know, one, I mean, because it really, I mean, you, you talk about the Trinity, and, and it is a mystery. It is a mystery. I mean, there's things that we can, we can understand about the mystery that God has revealed, but it's only going to be that. And any analogy that we use, right, in trying to explain the Trinity, it's going to fall short every single time. Every single time it will fall short. Uh, that doesn't mean that we don't try to come up with some things. Just don't make sure that's not partialism, modalism, or Arianism, right? And, and you'll be good. And it's this, you know, it's it, uh, William Lane Craig. I don't know if any of you are familiar with him. He's an apologist. He's out of Atlanta. I think he's out of Atlanta, Georgia. And uh, he writes some children's books, which are pretty deep. Uh, but, you, you know, you get into that idea because for, for children, you talk about the Trinity and we, we use an apple. All right? You know, you got the seed, you got the flesh, and you got the... The skin, which is modalism. So we're just teaching our kids modalism from, from elementary school on and whatever that is. But, so, but you're always going to fall short on any analogy because we can never come up with a perfect analogy that's going to explain the God of all creation. It's always going to fall short. But doesn't mean that it doesn't exist. We know what's revealed in Scripture, what He has revealed to us in Scripture, and it leads us to this Trinitarian view of God. Questions on the mystery of the Trinity? Thank you very much. We'll move on. Uh, Christianity's source of general revelation is special. It's general revelation and special revelation. Um, general revelation. <clears throat> Psalms 19.1 says, The heavens declare the glory of God. And the very heavens speak of God's vastness, of His majesty, of His awe. Romans 1, 19 through 20, because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes, His divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made so that they are without excuse. We can look at the awe of creation and we know in our souls that, okay, this just did not happen by accident. Right? So everywhere we look, we should see evidence of an intelligent creator. We can see God's handiwork in mathematics, history, philosophy, science, ethics, and logic. All fields of study point to the existence of a creator. There is nothing that does not point back to God's greatness. Right. Kevin and I were just talking earlier, and actually Matthew and I were too, and this idea about, you know, music, man, you know, I'm not a music person, that's already been abundantly, I've made that abundantly clear, but it's just, it's all, it's about mathematics. Music is about mathematics, I'm not very good at mathematics, and that's probably why I'm not very good at music, but it all points back to design and purpose, 
there's, uh, I really wasn't planning on talking about this, but it's, it's, it's this postmodern um, idea of music. I can't even remember the guy's name, but he, it's just without any rhythm or where they just took all the cues out. And it was just like somebody just plinking on tin cans. And it was like 15 minutes of it. I, I, I didn't listen to all 15 minutes. It was a couple minutes in and I was done. I'm like, look, if that, we're done. We're done as a nation. We're done as a humanity if that's what they came up with. But I'll try to get his name and maybe I'll play that for you guys next week or the week after that. Uh, you'll thank me for that. Um, <clears throat> there's four scientific discoveries that point to the existence of God. And again, when we were talking about that one atheist and t- talking about evidence, right, when they talk about proof, what do you need for proof? What do you need for evidence? We need to ask those things because the evidence is there. You may not accept that evidence, and that's on you, but evidence is there for God's existence. So first is the second law of thermodynamics, which tells us that even though the total energy in the cosmos remains constant, the amount of energy available to do useful work is always decreasing. Again, what we know about energy, it's, it's neither created nor destroyed, but it does convert to an unusable state. And we know that in the universe that we literally, and we are running out of energy, right? I think it's called a cold death that in 500 million years, hang on, right? The sun is going to run out of energy and then we're just going to freeze to death on earth, right? Because it's running out of energy. If energy went on perpetually, then we could make the case that the universe has existed always, eternally. But that's not the case. So we recognize if it can run out, there's a point when it began. There's a point when energy began. Okay, so the second law of thermodynamics tells us that there was that. Uh, Because we know to be scientifically true, we also know that the universe had a beginning. There was a time... That doesn't sound right. There was a, I always struggle with this. There was a moment when the universe did not exist. When there was no time, when there was no space, and there was no matter. Right? There was a moment when that was the case, but there was God. Because God exists outside of time, space, and matter. So then you have the law of causality, which is all actions are caused by the effect of something else. Scientifically, the cosmos could not bring themselves into existence. Therefore, the universe has a cause, and I call this cause God. Stephen Hawking, he sat there and said it it was the law of gravity that brought the universe into existence. It was this last... One of his last claims, and it was a small little book that he wrote. Um, and this maybe, and again, I'm, I'm not a physicist or anything, but it's made me think for gravity to work, the law of gravity, there has to be something for gravity to work on. There has to be something for it to work on. But he would make the claim that the law of gravity brought the universe into existence. But a law doesn't create, it just describes. This describes how the universe works. It creates nothing. The law of causality. Then you have spontaneous generation, which uh, you have this idea of life came from non-life. That's called abiogenesis. And if we were to talk about life from life, that's biogenesis. Right? We know scientifically that life comes from life. Abiogenesis, it's not only, it's, it's not a law. 
It's not, it's not even a theory, right? At best, it's a bad hypothesis that's been proven wrong, that we know life does not generate, come from nothing. Intelligence only comes from intelligence. Life only comes from life. And so spontaneous generation tells us that it didn't come on its own, or biogenesis does. Um, there's no modern experiments that support the idea that life came into existence on its own. And just kind of looking at, um, there was an experiment that done back in the early 50s. It was the Miller-Ray experiment. Um, I don't know if it's still in biology books today, but uh, it's this idea that, man, these scientists, they, they create this apparatus, right? And they've, they've got their chemicals in there. They've got their water. They've got their electricity. And so, you, I mean, this is an impressive beakers and systems and tubes and that's flowing and, and he created uh, an amino acid. He created an amino acid. And from that, they're like, see, life can come from non-life. Right? An amino acid is not life. Right? An amino acid is the building blocks of protein, of which from protein, you get them, they link together, and then you, you get life. He got amino acids. We know today that literally the chemicals that he presumed that were at the beginning of the universe, that's not what's there. I don't know how they figured that out, but anyway, his whole chemical bath was not correct, which wouldn't give you the, even the amino acids and the life that, that was supposed to come from that. But to me, the crazy thing is, is even if this experiment produced an amino acid, even if it did, right, that would give us life, that's not an example of abiogenesis. That's an example of supernatural creation because there's a being outside of that experiment that put it all together, that put the chemicals in there, that put the water, that put everything in there that was needed to create that amino acid. That's evidence for supernatural creation. It's not evolutionary creation because you've got a being that exists outside of that experiment that put it all together, that monitored it, that measured it, that brought it about. Supernatural creation, not abiogenesis. Questions? Yeah, Parker? Uh-huh. Yeah. So they still have to have a poison. Mm -hmm. So even if they were able to produce those, you still have poison. Half poison can have, you know, blood. Yeah. So it still doesn't work. Yeah, it doesn't because one, it would, it, would, it would kill the other one off, right? I mean, it would, it would just destroy the other one. You don't have the other type of uh, Yeah. Impossible. That's what you're saying. Yeah. Awesome. Experiments in the mid-1800s, Francisco Reddy, Louis Pasteur, man, they disproved spontaneous generation. Life does not come from non-life. So you're going against a lot of scientific evidence to say, oh, yeah, abiogenesis is a thing. And I would agree it's a thing. It's just a false thing. It's an unproven thing. 
And then the third line of evidence is genetic information theory. Recent research has shown that DNA not only reveals information within its strands, but also design. And again, when you look at a DNA, the helix, it's, it's not you can just get any random parts that come together and it makes it work. It's got to be perfectly aligned up within its sequence. And they know as you get into molecular biology, man, it just goes deeper and deeper and deeper. There's design in everything that we see. There's intelligence in everything that we see. You cannot escape that within the scientific realm. You can ignore it. You can deny it. You just can't escape it. And then Francis Collins, he was the head of the Human Genome Project. I think he's just recently retired from that. Uh, he stated that DNA can be thought of metaphorically as the language of God. Uh, Anthony Flew, uh, he's a former atheist. He said the most, in, it's not up there, the most impressive arguments for God's existence are those that are supported by recent scientific discoveries. And again, so you got the idea that Christianity is anti-science. It's not. I mean, that's, man, that is just a false dichotomy that's been set up by a secular world. Because without an all-knowing, all-powerful, all-loving God who created everything, you can't do science. Things have to be able to be testable, repeatable. And in a random world, that never happens. It never happens. Flew elaborated, saying the findings of more than 50 years of DNA research have provided materials for a new and enormously powerful argument to design. With every new scientific discovery, it supports a supernatural creator. With every archaeological discovery that we find, it supports a supernatural being that created everything with purpose and design. We can't escape it. We can deny it. We can't escape it. And then last, you got the anthropic principle, which is dealing with design. It's an argument from design. It says the universe was deliberately designed with properties that make the existence of intelligent life inevitable. It's this idea of a, it's called a habitable zone that the earth rotates in. And it's only in this zone is where you can find life, where all of the properties, everything is aligned up perfectly for life to exist. Doesn't mean that it will necessarily, but in that zone. And so when they're talking about searching for life on other planets, they don't look outside of that zone. They don't go there because they know anything outside of that zone, there's no way that life could exist. But within that zone, everything is dialed in that it makes it perfect for life. Almost like it was created that way. Almost like it was created. Robert Jastrow, he said, the anthropic principle is the most interesting development next to the proof of creation. And it's even more interesting because it seems to say that science itself has proven as a hard, as hard fact that the universe was made, was designed for man to live in. It's a very theistic result. And so again, you know, secularism and evolution, right? Big Bang cosmology. It becomes a philosophical argument, not a scientific argument. Special revelation, right? We've got general revelation. We've got special revelation. General revelation is enough to convict you of sin. 
It's not enough to save you from sin. And it's important that we understand that. You know, that do we go and teach? Well, as long, man, if you're in the Amazon and you respond to the truth that God has revealed to you, that's enough to save you. Man, we must, not, we must not teach that. We must not believe that because Scripture says clearly that you're saved only through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Only. Again, we can take that Romans 1, 18 through 20, and we can say, man, there's enough. I know that there's a God. Man, my conscience knows it. I can suppress it, but I can't change it. There's enough to convict me that I'm a sinner, that there is, that there is some being out there that is greater than me. Will I pursue that being? If we're willing to pursue, God's willing to draw near. He will turn no one away. Only through special revelation do we intimately learn of the God that he is. And again, he is an intimate, loving, personal God that makes him that theistic being. All right? He's powerful. Hebrews 1.10, You, Lord, in the beginning laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the works of your hands. He's holy. Leviticus 11.44, Be holy, for I am holy. He's patient. The Lord is compassionate and gracious. He's slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. He's love. 1 John 4.8 says God is love. It's not that he just has love, but he is love. That's part of his attribute. He's a redeemer. Our redeemer, the Lord host is his name, the Holy One of Israel. And then Colossians 1, 13 through 14. He rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. If you're not actively cultivating a biblical worldview, then you're passively absorbing a false one. Questions, problems, concerns? All right. You know what? No class next week. We do philosophy the week after that. Let me close us in prayer. Blessed Father, Lord, we do just thank you that you are the all-knowing, all-powerful, all-loving, all-present God. Uh, Lord, there's nowhere that we can go that you're not there. Uh, there's no secret sins that are hidden from you. Uh, Lord, may we humble ourselves before you through your Son, Jesus Christ, being filled with the Spirit of God. Lord, may we take these truths, and, and Lord, may we apply them to our lives. May we live them out in our communities. Lord, may we have favor in our spheres of influence that we would have opportunities to speak of your love and your truth. I pray your blessings upon each person that's here, upon their families, Lord, that you would strengthen them, you would guide them, uh, Lord, that you would lead them in your righteousness, in your justice, in your love, in your mercy and grace. And in all things, Lord, may we give you the glory, Lord Jesus. And it's in your mighty name we ask these things. Amen.